Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start a new series over the next few weeks going through uh, Acts chapter 2. We're calling it 239 Church, 239 Church. And so we're uh, here in Acts chapter 2, and we're expecting God to do great things this morning. So let's stand as we read God's Word, Acts chapter 2 and verse number 1. The Holy Spirit says through Dr. Luke. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and astonished saying, are not these all who speak Galileans? That is, they're hicks from the sticks. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We are hearing them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mockingly said, they're filled with new wine. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. You may be seated. Today, we're looking at a spirit-empowered church. And so my question to you is, why do you go to church? Why do you go to church? You know, a recent study found that 31% of American adults say that they've attended church in the past seven days. And you're like, yay, 37, 31%. Well, that means that 69% didn't. A Gallup survey that is done pretty much every other year, uh, for the first time in this survey's history, uh, there were less Americans who were members of a church, mosque, or synagogue than ever before. As a matter of fact, 47%, for the first time it was under 50% of U.S. adults claim to be a member of a church, synagogue, or mosque, which is down 20% in the past 20 years. Over 40 million Americans have stopped attending church in the past 25 years. And so the question is, well, why is that? Why have people stopped going? So I came up with five reasons. Number one, hypocrisy. Some of the reasons that people just stop coming to church is they see, uh, they see moral failure among the leadership and inconsistency in the pews. And a lot of people have been hurt by the church. Uh, church hurt is real. And maybe some of you have been hurt by the church and you, you really struggled. Maybe even coming here this morning, it's been a struggle. But that's one of the reasons why people stop coming. Another reason is irrelevancy. Just doesn't seem to be relevant. I mean, why come to church? It's it's. It doesn't really fit my lifestyle. It doesn't really help me. And then also, just to reiterate, that 
often something else is more important. And you know, we live in a fluent location, but also just a country that's got a lot of money. And what I, I found is that more money means more options to do other things on the weekends. And uh, you know what, our competition here is not the church down the street. They're, they're not our competitors, uh, they are our partners. But the thing that we really have to, amen, praise God for that. The thing that we really have to compete with is not the church down the street, it's the beach, it's the ball field, it's the bed, right? I mean, it is a whole lot easier to sleep in and eat brunch than go to church. The third reason is politics. Sadly, a lot of churches have gotten in bed with politicians and political parties, and that's caused a lot of people to just disregard the church. Another reason is a lack of discipleship, that people don't really understand anything. They go to church and, and they just they, they check a box, but they don't understand because churches are not intentional to make disciples of Jesus who follow him in faith and lifestyle and help others do the same. And so there's no really purpose or no direction. They're not really uh, connected to the vision. And then a fifth reason is there's just a lack of community. I can't make friends. I can't find people that I can connect with. And so the question I have before you today is that well, what would it take for our church to, to discontinue the downward trend and actually move the needle in our area in, in reaching and discipling people who reach and disciple people? What would it look like? And so that's what this series is all about. I think part of the problem is our whole concept of what church is. The word church was a word that was already kind of around in the Greek language. It's a word ekklesia. That's what the Greek word was. And in, in Jesus's day, this word ekklesia meant a group of people that were gathered together for a specific mission. And so here, the first believers were called the ecclesia. They, they were gathered together to engage in mission. And so that's what it was always about. It's, it's to gather together to be engaged in mission. And because of centuries and centuries of history, uh, th there's been a mind shift. And, and the mindset of what the church is, is now because of history is it went from being a movement and, and, and going from a group of people gathered for a mission to now the church is just a place you choose to go to or it's an institution you choose to be a part of. Well, the reality is, is that the church is not just a place you go to and the church is not just an institution you belong to. The church is a spirit-empowered movement of God to be on mission for God to reach the world for Christ. And that's why every Sunday we end our service by saying you come to church, go and be the church because we're not called just to sit sour and soak until we croak here in this building, but we are to go out and share the love of God to everyone who needs it. And so what we're going to do this, these next few weeks is we're going to see what does it mean to be the church? And what you're going to see is that we are called to continue the spirit empowered movement that Jesus started. So today we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts chapter two takes place on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means 50 days. It's 50 days after Passover. It was 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. The disciples have waited 10 days since Jesus ascended to the Father for the day of Pentecost. And it's an important day in church history because it's the day that the Holy Spirit of God empowered the church to continue the global movement that Jesus started. Jesus said in Acts chapter one, verse eight, you shall be my witnesses and you will receive power to be my witnesses. And so he promised that they would receive power that would enable them to reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so how can they accomplish that mission? 
And how can we accomplish that mission? The answer is the Holy Spirit of God. See, you have to understand that Christianity is not just a checklist. Christianity is not just a set of beliefs that you consent to and follow. Christianity is daily interaction with the Spirit of God. That's what it's all about. And so what does it look like to be a Spirit-empowered church? And do you believe with all your heart that if our church was on fire with the Holy Spirit of God, that it would change this community? I do. And so a Spirit-empowered church... And a spirit-empowered believer is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purposes to reach the world for Christ. We're already fired up. Let's go. All right, here we go. Number one, let's look at this. The power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. Verse one, when the day of Pentecost arrived, so the Jewish people were all descending on Jerusalem for this feast. Before the day of Pentecost, Pentecost was actually a feast that was one of the big three. There were three big feasts that people from all over the world came to Jerusalem to celebrate. First one was Passover. 50 days later was Pentecost. And then later on would be the Feast of Booths. And so while everyone is descending upon Jerusalem, the Bible says that they were all together. That is that the church, the apostles and the 120 were all in the upper room. Now, there's some speculation this may have been in the Temple Mount, but we're not really sure. But they were in the upper room, and what they were doing for 10 days is that they were praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to send them. Because when Jesus ascended in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, Jesus' first assignment was for them to do nothing until the Spirit comes upon them. Now, why is that? Because they really couldn't do anything of value for the mission until the Holy Spirit came. And so the question for you, maybe you're asking, maybe you're new to church, well, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, he is God. He is co-equal and co-eternal as the third member of the Trinity. Now, some of you are like, well, what is the Trinity? And a lot of traditional churches, maybe Baptist churches, the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Bible. Well, no, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's a person. He's not a potion. He's not an it. He's not some sort of abstract energy force. The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. Now, some of you say, well, that's hard. How do I understand the Trinity? How can there be one God represented in three persons? I don't really, it's hard for me to understand that. And if that's hard for you to understand, you're not alone. It's like taking a, a Dixie cup to the Gulf of Mexico and trying to fill it all up. <laughs> you, you can't fill all of that in one little cup. And our little pea brains can't really understand all that there is of the things of God. But to deny the Trinity is to lose your soul, but to understand it and articulate it might be to lose your mind, but we trust it anyway because it's in Scripture. And so the Holy Spirit, uh, his job is to point everyone to Jesus. The Holy Spirit never points people to himself, always to Jesus. So like if the Holy Spirit were in the play, the Holy Spirit would work in the tech booth. Okay, they would shine the spotlight on Jesus, who's the main actor. And so the Holy Spirit points to Jesus and Jesus points to the Father. And so what you have here is the Holy Spirit is actually the one who empowered the life and ministry of Jesus. And so if you and I are to carry out the mission of Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit as well. And so Jesus said, don't do anything until the Spirit comes. So verse number two, suddenly out of nowhere, there came from heaven a mighty sound, a sound of a mighty rushing wind. So this was a sound of a tornado. 
you know, when I lived in Arkansas, I was a kid, uh, in 1998, uh, there was an F5 tornado that just went maybe a mile or so from my house. And I never will forget hearing the sound of that tornado. And maybe you remember, some of you still kind of have some PTSD from Hurricane Ian. You remember the sounds of the wind or Hurricane Irma. Well, I want you to get the idea that this was not some sort of peaceful, gentle breeze that filled the apostles with warm and fuzzy thoughts. Uh, this was like a hurricane. And it took residents up in their souls and it empowered the movement that Jesus started. And it was so loud that people in the area were coming to see what was going on. And so you have the wind and the wind here is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's called the Ruah, the spirit that hovered over the face of the deep in Genesis one. In the New Testament, it's pneuma. We get our word pneumonia from, it's the breath of God. And so here you have this mighty rushing wind and then verse three, divided tongues of fire. So there was fire on top of their heads. Could you imagine if we came to church and a big tornado type breeze blew everybody away and then fire was starting to come out of people's heads? That would be a strange Sunday, wouldn't it? That would be pretty wild. Well, this fire rested upon them, and this fire is, again, a picture of God. It was a picture of the presence of God. In the Old Testament, God's special presence showed up in the fire. And so with Abraham, God's presence showed up through a torch of fire that went through the pieces of the sacrifice. For Moses, God appeared in a burning bush. For Israel, God appeared and guided them through a pillar of fire by night. And on Mount Sinai, fire fell down, which represented the presence of God. Elijah experienced God's presence when the fire fell from heaven and consumed the sacrifice and defeated the prophets of Baal. And then Isaiah experienced God's presence when he was transported to the throne room where smoke and fire came from the throne. And so here in this moment, the spirit of God represented through the theophany of the wind and through the fire is telling us that now something is starting and it's big. And what is that? that now every believer has the fire of God resting on them. Tim Keller says that every believer has become a burning bush. See, in the Old Testament, if people wanted to be in the presence of God, the only way they could be in the presence of God is they would have to go to the temple in Jerusalem. But now in the New Testament, the fire of God sits atop of our heads and inside of our souls. And no longer does God have a temple for his people to attend, but he has a people for his temple to dwell. And so the same power that crushed the enemy is the same power that lives inside of me and you. And so, verse four, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. Now, this is where Baptists kind of wig out. What's going on here, preacher? There's a lot of confusion when it comes to the gift of tongues, and we don't have time today to answer all of your questions, but here's what I want you to understand, that this event was not speaking in angelic languages. There was no mystical, unintelligible languages. These, this tongues here is we get our word glossary from this, that Greek word. It, these were known languages. And so this wind of God and the fire of God rested upon the people of God and enabled them to speak languages they had not known before. So this is Acts 2, not 1 Corinthians 14. And in Acts 2, verses 8 through 11, Luke carefully lists the different languages that were spoken in this day by the apostles and by the 120. 
Because remember, Jews from all over the known world came and they heard the gospel in their own language. Now, scholars wonder, is this a gift of what they were saying or was this a gift of how people were hearing? And I say, yes. Because this was a miracle. A miracle is when the supernatural invades the natural. Could you imagine if I just was preaching and then all of a sudden I start speaking in perfect Mandarin English, uh, Chinese? Or if I start speaking in perfect Haitian Creole? I don't know Haitian Creole. I don't know Mandarin Chinese, but those are known languages that are unknown to me, but people can understand them. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. And here's what I love. Stay with me. The first time that the gospel was publicly preached, it was preached in all languages simultaneously. You know why? Because God so loves the world. Do you know that in heaven there's no preferred language? It's not that English is the preferred language of heaven. There's no one preferred language. There's no one preferred culture. There's no one preferred ethnicity. God created all and God loves all. And that's very radical and counterintuitive to other religions. You know that in Islamic theology, they believe that Allah only speaks in Arabic. And so when you have the Quran, which is their holy scriptures, they do not believe that the Quran can be properly translated into other languages. And so even if you had an English Quran, it would say, this is not the Quran, it is an explanation of the Quran in English. Because in Islamic theology, if you want to hear Allah's voice, you have to hear it in Arabi, in Arabic. Because the power of the Quran is only in the Arabic. And so that's why as Islam spread throughout the world, it would come into countries, it would suppress the culture, and it would replace the culture with its own Arabic culture and enforce upon people to speak Arabic. But that's not Christianity. Because we don't come in and colonize people and try to make them be who we are. No, the Holy Spirit of God does something different. Because here's the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. The power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church is seen by bringing people who are least like each other together. See, that's what the Holy Spirit does. And so Christianity from its inception has always multi-generational, multi-ethnic, and multicultural. Why? Because God created and loves diversity. And so, like I said a moment ago, no one culture, no one language is the right culture or language. Now, that may upset some of you, but that's not what the Scripture teaches. Now, here's the good thing. The gospel and the Holy Spirit do not come to erase culture, but it comes to redeem culture. See, we're a tapestry. We don't all look the same and act the same and and talk the same, but we're filled with the Spirit of God, and that's that common denominator. And so what you have to understand is that the Holy Spirit of God does not suppress our culture, but it lifts our culture to be redeemed and to be used by God. So for those of you who kind of are biblically astute, the the day of Pentecost is the anti-tower of Babel. See, in Genesis chapter 11, the entire world was unified in one language and they were unified in one mission and that mission was to defy God, make a name for themselves and build a tower that touches heaven. It's known as the Tower of Babel. Well, the result is that God destroyed their tower and divided the people through language. And what what principle this teaches is that sin always divides. Sin always divides. It's been said, we don't have a skin problem, we have a sin problem in America. 
And so the day of Pentecost, the apostles were filled with the Spirit of God to make known the name of Jesus and preach the gospel in various languages, thus uniting and bringing people together under the banner of Christ. Why? Because sin divides, but the Holy Spirit unites. Now, our world is divided over everything. We're divided over politics, we're divided over religion, we're divided over socioeconomic policy, we're divided over skin color and morality. If we were to go around here in the room, we might even find some other division about some things that don't matter because we all know Kentucky is the best basketball team ever. (laughs) And only the Holy Spirit of God will help you understand that. But listen, in a divided world, we need a united church. And the only way the church can be united is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that we can only move at the speed of our unity? And Satan would rather divide a church than sell a barrel of whiskey any day. And so we have to be, you know, the sign of a united church, uh, the sign of a church filled with the Spirit of God is they are united in the mission of God. It's not that they all look the same or talk the same or think the same, but they are united on the same thing, and that is the mission of Jesus. So let me illustrate this. I'm going to show you something. Y'all know what this is? Anybody ever heard of Duke's mayonnaise? We're going to have revival in a moment. How many of y'all like mayonnaise? Any of y'all like mayonnaise? Good. I used to not like mayonnaise, and I tried them on French fries, and it set me free. Because fat on top of fat is good. As a matter of fact, you, you put, y'all, anybody ever had a mater sandwich? I'm from the South. I'm from Kentucky. Some of you Northern folks, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Some of you sophisticated people, you don't have a clue. But back where I'm from, you get two pieces of white bread. You put a mater in there, not one of those hothouse maters. You get a good garden-grown, spirit-filled tomato. You slice it on there thick, and then you slather it. You just put a bunch of Duke's mayonnaise on there. Brother, you will speak in tongues after you eat that, all right? I'm telling you that right now. So here's the thing about mayonnaise. Stay with me. Stay with me. The first two ingredients of mayonnaise are what? No, 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 no. Oil and water. That's the first two. Now, does everybody know that oil and water don't go together? They're enemies from way back. They're the OG enemies, okay? They don't like each other. But the third ingredient is eggs. And what eggs has in it is it has both the ability and the capacity to take water and oil and through the process of emulsion, bring them together to make something beautiful. (laughs) And so what the Holy Spirit is in this illustration is the egg. And Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, takes the water and the oil of you and me and brings us together to make something beautiful. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church is making the gospel visible by demonstrating that it has the power to bring people who were once enemies and once rebels to God together into one family. 
That's the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And now that's the first point. The second point is this, the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So let's keep going. Verse number four, the Bible says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. Now, for 10 days, the church has been in hiding. They've been praying. They're behind locked doors. But the Spirit comes and then now they are standing, most scholars believe, at the southern steps of the Temple Mount with thousands of people and they are preaching the gospel in other languages they didn't know before. And what we have in this one event at the day of Pentecost and why it is so important is that the day of Pentecost is about the Spirit empowering the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. And Peter has to explain this because people are saying, well, these people are drunk and they didn't know that Baptists didn't drink. <laughs> or at least they don't do it publicly. <laughs> Some of you reformed brothers in the room, you say, well, I have my cigar and bourbon every night. Well, good for you. Good for you. So Peter here is filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's going to explain what's going on. Because I mean, if you hear a mighty rushing wind fires over people's heads and people are speaking languages that they didn't know before because they're hicks from the sticks and they're not speaking it perfectly so you can understand it, you got some explaining to do. And so Peter says, here's what's going on. He quotes from Luke, or Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, tells us the Holy Spirit, hundreds of years before this event, said that in the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Now, why is that important? Here's why it's important. Stay with me. Is that the privilege of prophecy in the Old Testament was really just for the select few. They were, it was often few and far between. There would be decades or centuries that would go between prophets and the, 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 the office of prophet was important because it represented God's word to the people. So here in the New Testament, under the new covenant, God promises that all of his people will have the ability to prophesy. Let that sink in for a moment. All believers are filled with the Holy Spirit and, been, and have been given the gift to share the gospel. Now, it is easy to come to a large church like this and to believe that the fire of the Holy Spirit is, over, is only over the heads of the pastor or staff members. And it is easy for us to think that the pastor is the hero and the celebrity of the church, but he is not, nor am I. Because if you are a child of God, you are filled with the Spirit of God, and you have the power of God in your life to equip you to do the unique work that he's called you to do. That's what this is teaching. J.D. Greer says this. He says, that which was reserved for heroes in the Old Testament becomes standard fare for believers in the New. In terms of sharing the gospel, you are in the same league with Isaiah and Jeremiah. Even if you are the shyest person on the planet, you have been filled with the Spirit of God to speak the Word of God to others. See, the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is to empower you and equip you to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. If you go to Acts 1.8, it says, but you shall receive power. You can put your name. But Alan shall receive power. But April shall receive power. But McKinney will, sh will receive power. But Sally will receive power. That what? That the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, there's a lot of debate 
over the work and the role of the Holy Spirit that plays in the life of the believer. And here's what the scripture does teach us. The Holy Spirit plays a vital role in your life. He regenerates you, makes you alive. He indwells you once you are saved. He secures you eternally. He convicts you of your sin. He convinces you of your Savior. He leads and guides and directs you. He fills you. He produces fruit in you. He illuminates the Word of God and truth to you. And here's the thing. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 26. He says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus says that, that the Holy Spirit is our helper. That word helper in the Greek is the Greek word paraclete. It's, two, it's a compound word. It means to come alongside. It's also been translated as counselor or advocate. So I want to show you something that will help you understand the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. And here's my thing I want to share with you. Y'all know what these are. These are a pair of cleats. To help you understand the Holy Spirit, the word helper means paraclete. This is a pair of cleats. <laughs> now, if you've ever wore cleats to play sports, football, soccer, other sports, you know the value of cleats. So here lately, I have, um, I've been playing soccer. My son and some other guys from church, they, they play soccer on Sundays, and, and, and they invited me. And I used to think that soccer was for sissies until I played it. <laughs> it's, it's really tough. And so the, the first time I was out there playing, um, I just had regular tennis shoes. Now I, just, I have no idea what I'm doing. And those who have played with me, they would agree. I have no idea what I'm doing, okay? I just, get, I just go out there to run around, okay? and chase a ball, okay? And so the other day, I, I was there with my first game, and man, I had a moment. The ball was here, I was here, the goal was here. I was here, the ball was here, the goal was here. And I went, and I kicked it, and it went the opposite direction, and I thought I broke my toe. <laughs> so the guys were saying, and the gals are saying, you need to get a pair of cleats. And so I got a pair of cleats, in my first game, I played with my new pair of cleats. I scored two goals. So they're, they're, they, they call me, you know, the, the new Messi, right? <laughs> the new Messi. So what does this have to do with anything? Well, let's think about what, what do cleats do, all right? The Holy Spirit is our pair of cleats. Paracletes. What do cleats do? The first thing that cleats do is they keep you grounded. So when you're playing soccer or football, they keep you from slipping and sliding. They keep you from, from falling down. They, they keep you grounded to the ground. And so that's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God keeps us grounded to the gospel and the truth of God's word. He keeps us from slipping spiritually. The second thing that cleats do is they help you change direction quickly. And so uh, you're going this way, but you, the ball's going that way, so you gotta run towards the ball. Well, the Holy Spirit of God will move you in the right direction and lead you to where you're to go, the right place you're to go. Third things that, the third thing that cleats do is they protect your feet and they support you. 
Well, the Holy Spirit protects your soul and your life by giving you joy and peace and comfort when you're hit by the hard things of life. And the fourth thing that cleats do is they help you run faster and hit the ball better. Well, the Spirit of God gives you the supernatural ability to do things that you could not do without Him. So He is your paracletes. Now, how do you know you have the Holy Spirit? And some of you come from different backgrounds. Not everybody in this room is a Baptist. I get that. Some of you grew up from Catholicism, some in Pentecostalism, some in fundamentalism, and some you don't even know. Well, some branches of Pentecostalism, they already know they have the Holy Spirit, right? And the evidence of the Holy Spirit is that they would say is that you speak in tongues or that you practice signs and have the sign gifts. And fundamentalists, they believe, well, the Holy Spirit is there, but the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit is seen by what you don't do. So you know you have the Holy Spirit if you don't smoke, you don't chew, and you don't kiss those who do. But the Bible does not teach either one of those. Here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the primary evidence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is sharing the gospel. Because remember, the Holy Spirit is all about shining the light on Jesus. Now, there are a lot of people who make much of the spiritual gifts, and they are important. Every person, every child of God has been given a spiritual gift. These are not superhero powers. They're not given for the purpose of self-realization or actualization or expression, but they are a supernatural gifting with one unifying objective, and that's to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so you've been uniquely equipped and gifted to do that. Some of you, you you're like, well, I don't, what, what's, what's my spiritual gift? And some of you have taken spiritual gift tests. Anybody ever taken a spiritual gift test? Some of you have. We do those from here from time to time. Some of those are helpful. Some of them are not so helpful. Sometimes they're just aptitude tests. Heard of a couple of guys, they, uh, they, they took a spiritual inventory test and, and so they, were, they filled it out and they got the end where you tally up your number and the number on the back of the sheet tells you your spiritual gift. And so this one guy, he was there and he, he looked, he said, oh my goodness, said this from, oh my goodness, guess what I got? And the guy said, what did you get? He said, I got the gift of martyrdom. <laughs> and he says, that's an amazing gift, but I kind of bummed because you only use it once and then it's over. <laughs> And so the other guy started tallying his up. He got to it and he looked on the back and he turned just as, just as white as a ghost, as a, just as a sheet. And I said, what did you get? And he's devastated. He's like, I got the gift of celibacy. <laughs> he said, I'd rather have martyrdom than celibacy. Listen, the best way to discern your spiritual gifts is not necessarily by taking a, an inventory test. The best way of learning your spiritual gifts is by serving others. See, as you grow as a follower of Jesus in faith and lifestyle, and as you help others do the same, and as you serve others in the church and serve others in the community, you will see how God has uniquely gifted you to meet the needs of others and to share the gospel to fulfill your part of the mission. You know, I, I'll tell you right now, God did not give me the spiritual gift of the two-year-old ministry. All right? Some of you, he's given that gift, but he's not given that to me. But you'll never know until you jump in the mission. 
See, remember Jesus said, do nothing until the Spirit comes? Well, there's some believers still obeying that command. They're doing nothing. Because they're waiting on some sort of tingling feeling to just go down their spine. What God wants you to do is he wants you to move. He wants you to work. He wants you to serve others. And as you serve others, you discern, you find out what your gifts are. Listen, if everyone gave like you and served like you and prayed like you, what kind of church would this church be? See, movements move. And if you're not moving, then you're probably not a part of the movement. And I'll tell you that where there is no spiritual movement, there's probably likely no Holy Spirit. But if you are a born-again, spirit-filled believer, you were saved to serve, not sit sour and soak. Amen. This is an old saying, but it's a goodie. It's been said that the average church is like a football game. 22 people desperately needing rest, surrounded by 22,000 people desperately needing exercise. <laughs> we have been given a task and if you want to experience the Spirit of God in your life, be on mission for Jesus. Amen. What many of us do is we quench the Spirit, or we resist the Spirit, and we're not filled with the Spirit. And that's why we're miserable. Because if you are a child of God, you have the Spirit of God inside of you, don't keep Him in a bottle, but surrender your life to Him. Again, J.D. Greer says, the primary objective of God's spirit is to complete the mission. To know him is to be devoted to that mission. Without him, we cannot hope to succeed. But with him, we cannot fail. You know, sadly, there's wildfires right now in Hawaii. I got actually a text message from some church members who are stuck in Hawaii because of the wildfire. Here in Florida, we have wildfires, and, and we're in a little bit of a drought right now, and, and, and we need to pray for those poor people in Hawaii. But wildfires, they just spread and they go. And they just go and go and go. Francis Chan, in his book, Forgotten God, said this. He says, when I read the book of Acts, I see the church as an unstoppable force. The church was powerful and spreading like wildfire. Not because of clever planning, but by a movement of the Holy Spirit. Riots, torture, poverty, and any other type of persecution couldn't stop it. Isn't that the type of church movement we all long to be a part of? Amen. If you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you, the same Spirit that was present at creation that raised Jesus from the dead, that lit the flame of the church on the day of Pentecost, that has empowered the church around the world for centuries and caused you to be born again, that same spirit lives in you to empower you and equip you to be an effective witness for Jesus. You don't have excuses, you have opportunities. Because listen, if Jesus is in your heart, he will come out of your mouth. Y'all know who Billy Joel is? <laughs> Billy Joel's got a song. It's probably gonna get stuck in some of your heads. But here's what his song is. 
We didn't start the fire. It's always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we try to fight it. We didn't light the fire of the Holy Spirit. God did. But we've been fighting it. We've been fighting him. And I want to tell you today, stop fighting him. Oh, church, don't fight him. Do you understand that he wants to do more in and through us than we can even imagine? Don't fight him. Don't resist him. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, don't fight him. Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead so that if you turn from your sins and turn from your goodness and surrender your life to Jesus, he will forgive of your sins, fill you with his spirit and do things with you that you've never dreamed. Don't fight him. Follow him. A prayer I pray every day, every day of my life. I can't remember the last time I hadn't prayed it. Is Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want to follow you. Don't fight. Just follow. Don't stop. Surrender. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that your spirit would move in this moment. That Father, this, this moment would be a holy moment. God, that you would send your spirit like a mighty rushing wind in this room. And that, Father, you would call sinners to yourself. And that you would empower us and embolden us to boldly go and to boldly do what we've never done before. Lord, help us to stop fighting. And help us to be filled and to follow your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Holy Spirit loves to talk about Jesus. So let's stand. And let's sing with all we have about the King of Kings.